Let's go ahead and get started. Um, thank you so much for getting yourself out of bed on a Saturday morning. Um, Mick, would you stand up for just a moment? Uh, this is the dress code. <laughs> so, if I want you guys all to take careful note and uh, make some changes for next time. Thank you, Mick. You may have a seat. <laughs> no. If you have an extra tie, bring it. If you got a clip on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's really great to have you here. Thanks so much for coming. Um, we. Uh, this is a, 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 a long year. Uh, we'll be together about 17 times, I think, uh, Lord willing. And um, today we just get a start. And um, the, we're going to start today with all of what build is. It's like eating an, an elephant. Um, you just have to do it one bite at a time. And so you're going to get overwhelmed by the size and the, the magnitude of what we're going to present to you. Um, but uh, I just want you to, to be patient and just take a bite. And then you come back in two weeks and we'll take another bite. And there'll be things that you'll do on your own between uh, meetings that you'll take another bite or two. And over time, this will begin to sink in. And, and uh, if it's not already sunk into your life, um, and many of you have done build before and you're on your second or third, I don't know, maybe even fourth time, I don't know. And um, so you're just getting a chance to refresh on these things and sharpen some uh, points on it. So uh, don't be intimidated by what you get today. Um, what I do want to start with, I want to give you just a, a general beginning intro to what build is all about. Um, so what I want you to do is I actually want to take your notebook and turn it over on the back so you can see it. If you are... Um, a repeat guy, and you did not uh, bring your notebook, look on with somebody else, okay? And by the way, um, this whole thing that we do uh, when we're together here is uh, what we call family style. You can get up and get down anytime you want to. If you want to go get something more to eat, you're not going to disrupt me or anybody else by getting up and making your way out. Um, if you need to use the restrooms, they're out the door and down back towards the door you came in. When you get to the main hallway that runs that direction down there, they're right on that corner there. Okay, We can help you out if you need. But get up, get down whenever you want. If you have any questions, if something doesn't make sense, um, you ask Omri, and who's out there in the hallway. He answers all questions. Now, if you, can, if you have any questions, enter, just raise your hand, interrupt. Um, we're just really casual here as we work through, okay? All right, now you're looking on the back of your notebook. Here's what Build is about at the top. Calling out the men of the church. Um, this ministry exists under the elders of Grace Bible Church to say to the men of the church, come over here. Just come over here. We're going to meet together. We're going to gather together on a regular basis throughout a year. So come on over here. That's... The basics of it there. What are we going to do when we get you together? The next line, uh, we're trying to unite the men around biblical leadership disciplines, spiritual disciplines, disciplines that when you put them into effect in your life, it makes you into a better spiritual leader in your home and in the church. Now, what do we ultimately hope is going to happen with that? Last line there, that the church is going to get strengthened as it is trying to fulfill its gospel purpose, its gospel mission. So I want you to know two things that are true. This, what we're doing here, it's about you. It's about you becoming a man of God that you need to become, that God's word says you must be. 
And it, this is true at the same time. This is so much more than just about you. Because this is about the church that God shed his son's blood for to buy, to purchase, to make. And the church is strong only in, it, in its gospel purpose, is only as strong as its men are. Because God has called you to be a spiritual leader in your home and in the church. That doesn't mean all of you will become elders necessarily, or even deacons, but it means that you will need to be men who can take leadership roles among children, among the women, and you can care for the church well. Um, So this is our attempt to strengthen you personally with biblical leadership disciplines, and it is also our attempt to make sure that the church is strong. Um, And it's exciting to see 50-plus guys um, who are interested in that as well. So... Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about what's on the back of your notebook in just a moment. Um, But what I want to do before we go any further is I want to be able to go around just to each table. I want you to give uh, just your name. um, And let's do three things. Your name is one. Two, what do you do? Are you a student? Are you working? If so, where? And three, how long you've been at Grace Bible Church. Okay? So your name, uh, what do you do? And how long have you been at Grace Bible Church? And we're going to start back at Bobby's table back there. So, Bobby, you start us off. Uh, my name is Bobby Casillas. Uh, I've been here at Grace Bible Church since the very end of the night. 2008. Uh, and for work, I've been here at the Juvenile Detention Center here in Mesa. Uh, very good. Thank you. Whoever wants to go next, you go. I'm uh, Adam Siegel. This is my first year attending Grace Bible Yeah. How's your boss? Uh, He's a slave driver. We know him. (coughs) All right. How's your boss? We'll talk later. His boss is in the room. Um, let's see. Were, were you here when, when the church started? I came about six months after the church. Wow. Okay. We'll see if anybody can beat that. Uh, Tyler. I'm Tyler. I'm, I work in the same place with the same background. <gasps> <laughs> happens to be my father. Oh. And he's a great boss, isn't he? He's awesome. <laughs> Very good. Let's go to the middle table right back here. Doug, Doug, you're to your table. Your table. You go. Very good. go. Oh, a blemished record. It's got an asterisk by it. Okay. 
Very good. John Rayner, uh, works for Software. Ah. So you know Dave. Right on. You guys in the same office doing the same kind of thing? Cool. It's good to have you here, John. Thanks. Let's go to the back table. Mike, start us off. Very good. Thanks, Blake. Yeah. Very good. Cool. Awesome. Min, thanks for coming today. Let's jump over to Brian's table, the slave driver. <laughs> I think I think you I think this might be a record um, that we have like three people that work in the same spot. That's I think. Um, Gus, please stand up for just a second. This is also acceptable. <laughs> so you can you got you got a range you got a couple of options here. And, uh, you can whatever you you got. You work at Wells? That's really weird. I'll, I'll have, we'll get to that one. That's good. Keep going, John. Oh, man. Okay. Very good. Yeah. I was like, man, I've missed you for a couple of years. Like, where have I been? That's good. Very good. My name is Bob I've been working at Grace for about six months, and I worked at First Solar in Very good. Let's jump to uh, Phil. Let's do your table. Okay? Kick us off. Phil's wife, Annie, is solely responsible for all that food back there. Yeah, so this is, he, he, he said, he doesn't want to take any of it home, so this is a ministry to the single guys. Uh, you have you have lunch to eat back there uh, as well. And the brownies are the best. There you go. I, I love Annie. She makes dessert for breakfast. It's good. All right.
Pretty good. So we have two guys who are. So you you don't have an asterisk by your name because you were, you've been here from the very beginning. So that's very good. All right, middle table here. Emmanuel kicks off. Uh, I'm Emmanuel. I work at Southern Center Croc Center as a personal trainer, and I've been at Grace for about two years almost. Very good. Excellent. Uh, my name is Constantine, but we call me Shadow. Um, I work at Fort Eddie, and I've been coming here since February. Excellent. Uh, my name is Gilbert, and I've been coming to Grace. I'm coming up on my two years, and I work for an aerospace company called Conway. My name is Jeff Hanla, and I've been coming to the church. Actually, um, we started coming maybe once every two months when the church started. We lived in Tucson, and my son Jacob was coming to the church. So we've been at every location, but we started coming here full time when we were at Gethsemane, and that's been about five years. Wow. I'm a physical therapist um, in geriatrics, so don't show me your soul back. <laughs> Unless you're over the age of what? Yeah, 80. Okay. <laughs> okay, um, let's, let's move to this table. Why don't you start us off? My name is Steve Kovac, and um, I'm a construction manager, and I've been going to the church for about three months. Excellent. And you're in SMED Small Group. Correct. Excellent. Good to have you here. My name is Michael Peterman. Um, I've kind of curious for about four years, and hmm. customer service in, uh, for a company called Cable One. Very good. My name is Glenn Wallow, and I'm currently a student, and we've been worshiping with you for two years. Very good. My name is Ryan Adamson. I'm in sales for a printing company. Very good. And uh, Matt, would you please stand up? <laughs> this is also acceptable attire <laughs> for Bill. <laughs> right on. <laughs> You're right, you did nail it. <laughs> uh, my name is Matt Cromwell, and I was a part of the group that uh-huh. was here at the church. I also moved away for a period of time. So, uh, but have been back since 2008, and I worked at the University of Phoenix for the that's, the job. That's, that's your job you're doing now. I'm with you. Uh, my name is Peter Kim. I work for Chase and I'm a student. And I've been coming to Grace for about a year. Wow, great. All right, last table. Scott, start us off. I'm Scott Emmerich, and I've been coming to Grace for nine years. And I work for General Dynamics Go ahead, Johnny. I'm Johnny Gettleman. Uh, I work for Bates Hardware. I'm still also for and cashing. And I've been attending Bates for six months, seven months. Yeah. Cool. My name is Frank Dudley. I work for the state of Arizona. I'm an electric utility appraiser as well as a railroad appraiser. I'm also independent. Power plants, and solar fields, wind farms, and all of that. 
Cool. I think next time we're going to have some name tags here so when you come in you can write your name down and you can um, put it on yourself somewhere and we'll be able to remember names better. But uh, uh, thank you guys for sharing that. Um, flip your notebook over again to the back. Let's talk through the things that we're going to be emphasizing in build this year. We will do this every single time we get together on a Saturday. There are six disciplines, spiritual disciplines, leadership kinds of disciplines, biblical disciplines that we're going to be trying to unite around as men in the church, okay? And the first one is everything. If you miss the first one, you don't get any of the rest of them. The first discipline we want to focus you on is the heart, your heart, okay? That's your inner man. We're going to talk more about that today. Um, But your heart is your inner man. It's who you are inwardly before God. It's not an organ like your beating physical heart. It's you, So you're going to be shepherding you. Um, We're calling you, encouraging you to um, prayerfully shepherd your heart towards the Word of God, towards the Bible, for a reason. Because the Bible is a means to getting God. So you're going to shepherd yourself to the Bible because you want Jesus Christ. Because you want God more than anything as a Christian. So that's key. You need to become a man. I need to become a man. We're going to be working on this for the rest of our lives. We never graduate from this. You never have this down completely. You're always fighting for this more and more and more that you discipline your life to come before the Word of God so that you can meet with God. Um, God has not revealed Himself um, any more clearly any place other than His Word. Yes, He reveals Himself in creation uh, to an extent as Creator, as one who is in control. But only through his word does he reveal himself as redeemer, as savior, as the one who loves those that he saves. So you need to come to the word of God in order to find him there, draw near to him and know him, love him, worship him, fear him, um, obey him. So that's what it's all about. You don't want to play leapfrog over that. You can come to the word of God for a lot of reasons and miss God. You can come to the Word of God because you need to win an argument at work tomorrow. You, need to, you can come to the Word of God because you've got to make up a Bible study for a uh, you know, small group or wherever you're at. And you can do those kinds of things and actually miss God. The Pharisees came to the Word of God and they missed Him completely uh, because they did not accept Jesus. And if they had understood what the Word of God was all about, they would not have missed Jesus. So you don't want to play a leapfrog over your heart, shepherding your heart, okay? because everything else flows out of this. The second discipline then that we focus you on is the home. The first place that you should step and make an, some kind of an influence and impact for the gospel is the place you live. Okay, This is great here because we've got guys that are living at home under their parents still, 
and we've got guys who are out living with, uh, they're single and they're living with roommates, and we've got husbands with wives, and we've got fathers with children. And this counts for all of you. Uh, you don't think, I don't want you to think that discipline number two is only for the married guys, or only for the married guys with kids. Wherever you are, the first place of impact that you need to make for the gospel is in your home. Guys do this very easily. They not only leapfrog over taking care of their own soul, taking care of their heart, but they also leapfrog over their homes to get to the other stuff that's going on outside of our homes. We define ourselves, most of us, by what we do. We're busy guys. We like to accomplish things. We like to be achievers. And we get in this sinful way of thinking that where, where the things are that matter are found outside of the home. And so we begin to play leapfrog over our wives, leapfrog over our, our, our parents, leapfrog over our kids, and we, we run outside. This begins in like junior high and high school, by, especially by the time you start driving. You are convinced at that age that the dumbest people in the world live in your home, except you. You're not one of them, but they all live in your home, and so you're dying to start getting out of the home to be with others. Listen, that's not where God focuses you. In the Word of God, and you'll see this this year, that God focuses you carefully and, and methodically, intentionally, on your home where you live. And so even if you're a single guy out living with roommates, your thought is probably, look, I just, we just pay rent together, we, we just, and that's about it. And whether or not what these guys do with their lives, I don't really know. And I'm just, you know, I'm, don't get in that frame of thinking because... In your mind, you're thinking, you know, but when I get that forever roommate someday, and she's going to be a she's going to be a princess, I won't be that way with her. But if you're living that way currently with other roommates, you're you're just dragging that into possibly potentially a marriage someday. So be in the practice now of where you live, bring a, an aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on the people you live with. You young men who are living at home under your parents, it's time for you to start saying, hey, Dad, um, is there anything that I can do to help make an impact spiritually on this home? Can I, is there something that you would want me to be doing that I can be caring for the, maybe my siblings, maybe others? How can I be caring for you, Dad? How do I pray for you? It's time for that to happen. Once you're doing that, discipline three, we focus in on the ministry. So with a heart for God, a heart for the gospel, and a household that's following your lead, being impacted by you, the ministry leader in Grace Bible Church, then steps into the church and then even beyond the church with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, ministry comes third in terms of priority. Let me explain what these are not. These are not um, things that you, okay, it's not like first grade, second grade, third grade. You do first grade, and then you're all done with it, and you never go to it again, and then you go to second grade. And then you do that, and you're all done with that, and then you go to third grade. That's not what these disciplines are. Disciplines one, two, and three are constant going on. You never graduate from any one of them, but there is a priority. You do focus on caring for your own heart first with the Word of God so that you'll meet with God. You take that kind of a man that you become into your home. You impact people there. And you also step into the lives of people in the church and beyond the church. That man who does that, who doesn't play leapfrog over his heart, doesn't play leapfrog over his family, that man has something to say. That man is useful for God's work in this world. A man who has not met with God in the Word, a man who's leapfrogging over his family, but man, he just loves to teach people theology and small group and stuff like that, that is a dangerous man. 
And you need to believe that and know that. So one thing at a time. The heart, into the home, into the ministry. Discipline four, we're going to point you to the qualifications um, for deacon and elder that are found in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. We want you to be men who are going to aspire to qualified leadership, qualified character. In particular, in build, what we'll focus you on this year is we'll spend two um, Saturdays on deacon qualifications, explaining those and um, encouraging you in that direction. Discipline five is the hermeneutic. Hermeneutics is a system of interpreting scripture, your way of interpreting scripture. Interpretation is a, a synonym for that. The ministry leader in Grace Bible Church carefully interprets God's word to discover what God meant by what God said in his word. Um, it's important for you to handle the word of God rightly and accurately. And we want you all as men of the church to be united around the same way of handling scripture. There are many different ways of handling scripture. Many different ways. You can go to many different churches many di- and bump into many different kinds of Christians and you all hear them handling a, a certain passage of scripture perhaps a little different than the other guy who handled it the other different way which was different than the way the guy that you grew up under in college ministry someplace. And what we're saying is we're all gonna, we want to get all on the same page about how we want to handle our Bibles, how we want to interpret them. We want to be careful in how we interpret the Bible. Um, lastly, discipline six, you are men who are at Grace Bible Church. You're not at any other Bible church or, or in the valley. You're at Grace Bible Church. And so we want you to be a part of what is our vision and what our purpose is as a church. Our vision is about the glory of God. We're trying to set our sights on the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ for the transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. Those three parts of our vision. The glory of God, the cross of Christ, and transformation of life by the Spirit. It's Trinitarian. The glory of the Father, the cross of the Son, and the way that the Holy Spirit changes life. We want to set our sights on that. That, when you do that, moves you to action. It gives you a gospel purpose. And there's three parts to that. Um, Drawing in, building up, and sending out. So we want you to take your life and work with us in what our vision and our purpose is as a church. Okay? And so we'll spend some time at the end of the year talking about that discipline six. Okay? So every week when we start, I'm going to say, take your notebook, turn it over, and we're going to start walking through these every single time and review them. Because when you get bumped in the middle of the night and you wake up, when your little one comes in, and taps you on the shoulder and says, Daddy, I think I'm going to throw up. You say, shepherd your heart, home. No, you don't do that. But you need to know these, okay? You need to know these. My son the other day came in. He's a, he's a 10-year-old. He's in fifth grade. And he comes into the bedroom, and he comes to the end of the bed. And he's like this. He's white as a sheep. And I never got out of bed so fast and grabbed him <laughs> and drug him into the bathroom. We'll strike that from the tape here this morning. But um, anyway, okay. Uh, your notebook is something that you need to bring every single time. If you open it up, you'll see that there are um, different sections in, inside. The first thing you'll find is you'll find your um, schedule for the year. Okay. And why don't you go ahead and just take a look at that real quick. Your schedule on the inside. And if you are a repeat guy, and um, Omri had a, we need to make sure that you all got that uh, extra handout this morning, because uh, it'll have your schedule in there. You'll see that we meet about two times a month. It's not necessarily every other week, so don't think, oh, we meet in two weeks. Always check your calendar, because it might not always be that way, okay? 
And you'll notice over in the second column, you'll see that the disciplines run right down there. Discipline one today, the heart. We're going to spend the first one, two, three, four, five Saturdays together just talking about the heart. Why? Because it's everything. It's everything. What you do with your heart and the Word of God is everything for you as a man. So we're going to make sure we're going to hit the heart heavy. Then we move into the home. Then we move into ministry. Then in February, we'll hit the qualifications. We'll spend three times on the hermeneutic, how to interpret scripture. And we'll spend our last Sunday on the vision and purpose of the church. There's a couple of um, different things down below. We have a men's retreat coming up, or a men's conference, I should say, October 26th and 27th. It's going to be like a Friday night and all-day Saturday thing in town. You don't have to um, go sleep in a really bad um, bunkhouse someplace at a, a, a campsite. You get to go home and sleep. And then the Shepherds Conference. We try to take a bunch of guys to the Shepherds Conference every year. Um, the first tab is on the heart. So anytime you get a, uh, a handout, um, it's going to say at the top, D1, D2, D3, D4, D5. When you're done with that, you can just put that in section one of your notebook and then you're going to kind of have your own resources here for a while. At the end of discipline one, or the, I'm sorry, at the end of that section, uh, there's a whole bunch of resources in there that are already in your notebook. I'm going to go over those more next time and we'll talk more about the notebook next time, okay? But I just want you to be a little familiar with how the notebook works. You need to bring that every time if you can. That'd be great, okay? Um, what do you need to do every Saturday when you come in? Every Saturday when you come in, I encourage you to come early. We're going to start at 6.45 sharp, which is a different time than what we've normally done. We've normally started at 6.30, but this year we're going to do 6.45 to 9.15. And the reason for that is because Wellspring is meeting the same mornings. That's the women's version of this. And they're going to start up in two weeks. And for husbands and wives who are in that together, for the husband to come at 6.30 or 6.20 and the wife has to wait around till. You know, 7 when they start. So we try to put our start times closer. Uh, so we're meeting at 6.45. So come, come a little bit early. Uh, we'll have some food and drink ready for you. Come in, get something to eat, get settled, talk with each other, fellowship a little bit. Um, when you come in, you're always going to grab the handout on that cart and you're going to check your name off. Why do we take attendance? Because we're, um, we're very concerned that you would be here. We want you here. And we want you to work hard at what you're doing. Um, after build comes another ministry for guys who have been faithful in build. It's called H3. And Smed is the primary leader of that for the elders. And um, that focuses more on exposing you to what the theology of the elders is throughout the course of a year. It meets every week. This year they meet on Wednesday mornings um, and uh, they meet at the office. If you think that that's something you would want to do and be a part of, what we're looking at is you being faithful in build throughout the year. Uh, we don't have an attendance requirement that you have to be here for all of them or you can only miss two. Uh, there, look, there's lots of flexibility with you. And especially because we record each session, you can get it online. But we want you to be here. And we want you to be faithful with the homework that you get because that tells us something about how you're getting it, if you're getting what we're talking about. And if, you're, if you do well in build and your attendance is good, we want to encourage you to go on to H3 and take that with SMED. Okay? Um, your worksheet will always have at the back of it that you get, you'll, you'll get a, the last sheet there. You actually have two extra ones today. Um, you have a homework sheet. Normally, this homework sheet, if you look at the back of your paperclip thing that I gave you today, the second to the last sheet says, Homework due for Saturday, September 22nd. 
Um, normally, you're going to get this on a colored sheet because it's just too confusing to keep it all white paper. So we try to do the homework on a colored sheet of paper. That'll start next time, okay? Um, so you're going to have homework that you're going to need to do. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, this is what you're going to do in your small groups together. Uh, every time we meet together, uh, we normally will do small groups at the front end of the meeting. We'll break up and go to different classrooms here, and um, you have your uh, small group assignment list there as well. That's in um, at the very back of the paperclip thing that you got this morning. You can find your name there. If your name's not on there, let me know today, and we'll get you added to one of the small groups. Um, I think we made a couple errors here and there, so we may not have you on there, so make sure you let me know that. Um, so you're going to be in small groups, spend time talking about your homework that you did from the last time. Okay? Uh, so you're going to have that every single time you come in. Pick up your uh, handout at the door, mark your name off, get something to eat, come sit down, uh, get ready to go, and feel free during any of our meeting time to ask questions. Uh, let's see. What else do we have to do? I think that covers all the, the, the basics intro stuff that we need to know. So with that in mind, I want you to take your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 16. I want to have you look at a passage of Scripture with me. We're going to pray, and we're going to jump in today, okay? Psalm 16, verse 8. It's a psalm of David. David was a man that was called um, a man after God's own heart. There is something unique about David that all of us should be like. But he was a leader in what all of us should be like. He's, a man to, he's the man to look at. This man, this man just, he just wanted Yahweh. He just wanted God. That's all he wanted. And he says things like this, Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. Just full stop. You can read words like that and just move on, but you shouldn't. That's what it's all about. That's the kind of man that I need to be. That's the kind of man that you need to be. That no matter where you go, no matter what you're doing, you set God before you. That you can't approach anybody else without having going through God to get to them. Because you set him in front of you continually. Um, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Um, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that I think I lack joy so easily as a man is because this doesn't happen the way that it should yet. Your joy is not dependent on your circumstances changing or becoming more favorable. Your joy is rooted in a person who is God, who is Jesus. And as you set the Lord before you, you become a happy man, a glad man, a man full of joy. And that's the kind of men that we need to be. Okay, I'm going to try to direct you to passages like this so that you can understand. This is what Discipline One is all about. You come to the Word of God to set the Lord before you. Okay, So let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we jump in today. And then uh, we'll uh, tackle our lesson. Okay, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our desire now um, to set you before us. And Lord, the only reason we would even think to do that 
And the only reason we would even want to do that is because of your, the work of your son Jesus in our lives. And the, by the power of the gospel, we are changed men who actually want you, desire you. We, we want your son. And so God, we give thanks to you. We humble ourselves in your presence even now. And we say thank you for making us into men like that. Um, thank you for saving us. And so, Lord, we pray that even as we meet together this morning, that we would set you before us and that um, this would be profitable, Lord. This is a, a big chunk of stuff to get today. I pray, Lord, that you would help us um, to use our time well, um, that this would be profitable, that we would um, rejoice in what you have done through your son Jesus for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. I am going to hit the ground running here. I want you to take out your sheet, uh, your, your worksheet for today. Uh, discipline 1, D1, Gospel Implications for My Heart. If you need to get up and excuse yourself, you want to get something more to eat, you need to get something more to drink, you just need to stand up because it's early in the morning, feel free to do that, okay? Um, what we're going to do, you also need to take your, um, your uh, sheet that you got. There's like a, a chart you got this morning. Did you see this? You need to take that out as well and keep that out on the desk in front of you. I have drawn an exact replica of this up on the board. Okay? So keep that out in front of you and we're going to be working off that. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start with what the gospel does for the heart. We're going to talk about this over here first. We're going to talk about who you were Without Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to start. Um, we're going to talk about who you were without Jesus Christ. We're going to fill this all in here, and that's going to be the first section of what we're going to talk about. Number two is going to be this broad event thing. I spaced it out on mine. If you look on your diagram or on your, your uh, sheet, you'll see the word event written up and down between that first figure and the other ones that are here. We're going to start uh, then, go to number two here. This is the gospel. We're going to just talk about what the gospel is. Because men like this, there's only one thing you need. It's the gospel. Then, thirdly, we're going to talk about what the implications are from the gospel and what this does for you right now. The way that you live right now. This is life. You live somewhere right now in this spectrum. Um, we'll talk about what that means. This is where you are. We're going to talk about the implications for the gospel on how you live now. You'll notice this is a rigid barrier between what you were over here and what you become here in the gospel. You notice over here, when you die, it's just a dotted line because this is just like taking a nap, right? This is sleep. That's what the New Testament calls death for the Christian. It's just sleep. And then you continue. Your body is gone. There's no body, but you exist. You are much more than a body. Okay? And then, at the resurrection, or if Jesus comes back and he raptures the church, this is the new stage of you then. Okay? I don't even think today we're going to be able to get to this part. But I just want you to know, it's, it, the story ends really good in the gospel. Okay? So if we don't get there today, just know that it ends really good for you. Okay? Alright, so let's start in by starting with number one. Okay? Let's talk about who you were before Jesus Christ. Turn to Mark chapter 7. I am going to go fast. You're going to have to turn quickly. This might be one of those um, 
Saturday mornings where you want to make a decision about how much you write down now and you might want to go back and listen to it again where you can kind of slow things down and stop it and write things in. And I encourage you to, on this uh, handout that I gave you on the, the diagram, write stuff all over it. I'm going to be writing stuff up here. If you want, you can do that as well um, just so that you can see. Uh, so this makes more sense. We'll explain this to you. All right, number one, Mark 7, verse 21. Jesus was dealing with religious men. He was dealing with the Pharisees and the scribes. And they believed that the greater dangers to them in life were dangers that could come to them from the outside toward them. Things like in verse, um, oh, what is it, 2, that the the disciples were eating their bread with impure hands that is unwashed. And the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands and observing the traditions of the elders. You know, when they're in the marketplace, they don't eat unless they cleanse themselves. There are many other things which they've received in order to observe, such as washing cups, etc. They were concerned mostly that external things, things on the outside, touching them, that was their greatest danger to avoid. And what Jesus does with his disciples is he tries to secure them, saying, that isn't so. The greatest danger that you need to face, disciples, is actually the danger that's inside you, that is you. Look what he says in verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed. And notice this isn't like one or two things. Uh, let me think of a couple of things. What is uh, Lying and uh, stealing. That, that proceeds. That, no, he has got a long list. He doesn't even have to think about these things. He knows the condition of man. Here's what proceeds out of the heart of man. Evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders come out of the heart. Adulteries come out of the heart. Deeds of coveting and wickedness are in the heart. Deceit is in the heart. Sensuality is in the heart. Envy is in the heart. Slander is in the heart. Pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus says that man is of such a condition that he actually defiles himself from the inside out. For now, here's what heart means. If you want to know what the word heart means, it's this. It's who you are inwardly before God. That's what heart means. Who you are inwardly before God. It's not a piece of you. It's not a part of you. It's you. But it's you inwardly speaking. Okay? It's you inwardly speaking. It's who you are inwardly as God sees you. That's where God addresses you, at the heart level. At at that level of the heart, man is... Jesus says, is a fountain of impurity and defilement. Okay, so uh, this condition over here is a fountain of impurity and defilement. You don't even have to have something defiling outside the man come and touch him and defile him. He's already defiled. That's what I was before Jesus. Go to Romans 8, verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 5, he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There are two really important words we need to define before we even talk on this. The first is the word flesh. 
Here's what flesh um, means in this passage. And by the way, flesh is one of those words, like most of our words, that there's a range of meaning. Uh, you, it can mean different things in different contexts. Okay, And so you have to let each context define what is meant. This is one of the common places, uh, a very common type of uh, usage of it that Paul uses. Um, and what does Paul mean here? Uh, Paul is not trying to make you think about this stuff on your arm, the skin, the flesh, physical flesh. That's not what is on his mind. The mind that is set on the skin or, or the this physical body. No, that's not what he means. What does he mean? Flesh here is this. It is all that is sinfully weak before God. This is what flesh means. It is all that is sinfully weak before God. It's often the contrast between um, flesh and God's power. God is, a, in the Old Testament, he's a God of, of, of might. He has a powerful right arm. And man is just flesh. Meaning he is sinfully weak before God. Your flesh um, is, is that which falters before God. And you know what? Flesh likes it that way. Flesh likes to be weak before God. It likes to fall short of God. It is sinfully weak. It's not just weakness. It's not just human weakness. It's not just human frailty. It's sinful weakness. The flesh is. The word flesh is is rarely ever used in a positive sense in the New Testament. Um, So flesh often means to emphasize then that which sinfully does not have the power or the capability of meeting God's standard. It doesn't have the ability to. And the flesh isn't like, doggone it, I'm trying. I I really want to meet God's standard, but I just can't. No, flesh says, I'm not interested. I don't want it. It's sinfully weak. It's sinfully unable to. It's all that falls short of God, and it's not interested in trying to attain to God. That's flesh. Now let's define the second important word, mind. Mind. It's another word that's similar to heart in many ways, okay? Uh, Because it's an inward description of who you are. Mind is another way of describing who you are. You're a thinker. It's who you are as a thinker. It's who you are as a person who meditates on things. It's who you are as a person who contemplates things uh, in life. Okay? Uh, So now, it's who you are as a thinker inwardly. Let's put this together in verse 5. Now watch this. For those who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to or in alignment with the flesh are people who are in alignment with all that is sinfully weak before God, because that's flesh, right? So he's talking about a person who sets himself according, aligns himself up with all that is sinfully weak before God. That person is one who sets his mind on that. All that I am as a thinker, I have put it in alignment with my sinful flesh. That's this person here. That's who I was before Jesus. That's who you were before Jesus. You were a man as a thinker inwardly, and all you wanted to do in your thinking inward self was align it with all that was sinfully weak about you before God. Everything that sinfully faltered before God about you, your mind was set on that. Who you were as a thinker was set on that. And notice, 
that your mind and your flesh in this condition over here are in no disagreement with one another. They are in complete agreement. The mind says, yes, I will set myself on all that is sinfully weak in me. The mind is not resisting that. The mind is aligning itself with that. And, and what is uh, represented by this in, on your chart is that this person over here on the far left is all one color. It's unmixed. There's no disagreement going on between mind and flesh. And there's even more here. You'll see there's no disagreement on. Okay. Now, there's a group of people who are in contrast to this in verse 5. Look here. But in contrast, those who are according to the Spirit, those who are according to the Holy Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's going to be, we're going to get here in just a moment. That's this person. For now, this is the person who is according to the flesh, and he sets his mind on the things of the flesh. Okay? Verse 6. He's going to talk more about this. For the mind set on the flesh is death. You know what you can do here? Watch this. I'm going to start filling it in. Mind set on flesh. Um, here's another word over here. You know what this condition is over here? It's death. The mind set on the flesh is death. Uh, this person is according to the flesh. Okay? That's what that condition is. According to the flesh. Set on death. But the mind set on the spirit over here is life and peace. This is life and peace over here. We'll add that in a little bit. Um, look at verse 7. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. What else is this condition over here? Hostile toward God. This is who I was before God came into my life and changed me. I was hostile toward God. What else does it say in verse um, 7? It does not subject itself to the law of God. I don't know. Let's just say that's just rebellious. Just because that's shorter to write. That's just a rebellious. That mind set on the flesh, the one who's according to the flesh, sees the law of God and says, uh-uh, not interested, no thank you. Verse 7 it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Not able. How would you describe yourself before you were a Christian? I wasn't able. I wasn't able to set myself under the law of God. Uh, verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These are people, this is a condition uh, where you do not please God. Wow. Defilement. Mark 7. It's defilement. Impurity. Everywhere. Okay? All right. Ephesians 2. 1 to 3. By the way, this is the bad news before the good news, right? Right? Yeah. Good news doesn't make any sense if there's not a bad situation that you are in. You don't need good news if you're okay. And this is a travesty when the church makes everybody think, you're okay. You don't need good news then. Because you've already got good news. You're okay. But that's not what the Bible says. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. You were dead. Well, we already got dead. In your trespasses and sins, right? In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
Okay, so Paul is going to describe the spiritual condition of believers before God saved them. Verse 1, spiritual death was located somewhere in that being over there, and spiritual death was found in the trespasses and the sin that that person committed. That's me before I became a Christian. Verse 2 says, I formerly walked in that. That means I lived in that. When Paul uses the word walk, it means live, right? I formerly lived that way. I lived in those trespasses and sins, and in those trespasses and sins where I lived was death. I was dead, right? Um, Look at verse 2. And that living and walking was according to a standard. You walked or you lived, watch this, according to the course of this world. That means your living was based against a standard. There's one standard for you. Um, You have the standard of the course or the path of this world, course of the world. That's what you pattern yourself after. So get this, there's no disagreement between your mind and your flesh, and there's also no disagreement between you and the world. In this condition, you love the world. It's your pattern. It's your path. It's your course that you're on before Christ saves you. Okay, the standard for living is also according to the prince of the power of the air. It's according to Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. Get this. There's no disagreement between you and the devil before Jesus in your life. That's who I was. All of these things. This is not a pretty picture at all of who I was before Christ. We walked, we lived according to Satan, what he said, according to the world, my mind and my flesh in agreement with it, completely so. And the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Whatever spirit was in the sons of disobedience, those who look like their father who's disobedience, they're the sons of their father who's disobedience, they look like their father disobedience. The spirit that's working in them, I'm even in agreement with that. Verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. So as we're over there, and as we're doing this, as we're walking according to the world and according to Satan, we are just diving into the lusts of our flesh as we do this. Our flesh, our, our, our sinful frailty before God has strong passions, lusts. And we like those and we dive into those. Now watch this in verse 3. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Okay? All that is sinfully weak before you, the flesh, has strong passions. Your mind has strong passions. And we indulged in those strong desires and passions of both the flesh and the mind. Again, your mind and your flesh and that condition over there are in no disagreement. It's an unmixed condition. Do you see that? you see how the New Testament is portraying what we were before Jesus? An unmixed, no disagreement. There's no friction anywhere over here what we do. We all want what we want, sinfully so, and there's no resistance. Okay? Dead. Um, we were children of wrath. Put that over here. What, what was I? A child of wrath. brutal. How about Ephesians 4 verse 17? Paul now exhorts those who are in Christ to separate their living in Christ now 
far away from that of the Gentiles. Okay, if this is what the Gentiles were, the unbelievers were, Paul is writing to these kinds of people here. And he's saying, take this living and don't make it look like this. Heaven forbid that this kind of living here for Christ would look anything like this. Okay, this is what he says in verse 17. So this I say, and I affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles used to walk, or the way the Gentiles walk. How do they walk? In the futility of their mind, in the wastefulness of their mind, in the uselessness of their mind. This is a useless mind over here. Useless thinking. Look what he says next. How is it so? Well, they're darkened in their understanding. They're, they're in the spiritual darkness in their understanding. So I don't know where you're going to write this. Uh, feudal mind. I'm just going to start writing over all of this. It's, it's not going to make any sense anywhere. Um, darkened understanding. Okay? That's how ugly it is over there. In this spiritual darkness. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, it means you're excluded from the life of God. You've got to write that in. Excluded from life of God. Okay? Excluded from the life of God. Um, verse 18, why are we that way? Well, because of the ignorance that is in them. Well, you tell me, what kind of ignorance is this? Is this a, oh, golly, I just didn't know. Based on what we've seen so far, the mind is and the flesh are hostile toward God. This is not an ignorance that is, I just didn't know. No, this is, I knew and I wanted to not know. This is like what it's like, the illustration I use is, I remember when my, my little ones were like two and three, and you'd want to talk to them, and, and they wouldn't look at you, because they knew what they would see. They, they would see my disappointment. They would see Daddy, um, the law dispenser of justice man now. And they would see the look on my face and that coming off. And they didn't want to see it. They were guilty and they didn't want to see it. And so I would have to take their little heads and turn it towards my, mine. And then I would hold their little face and then their eyes would be like this. <laughs> and I would try to figure out, how can I grab their eyeballs? <laughs> look at me! That's ignorance. They didn't, they didn't want to see what they knew I was. That's us. We are ignorant in that condition. And now why were we ignorant in that way? Well, verse 18, because of hardness of heart. What kind of a heart? What kind of an inner, inner man? Who are they inwardly? They are hardened in, inwardly. Hard heart. That's what that condition was before Jesus. Verse 19, having become callous. Oh, can't even feel you can't feel, because you know when you get a callus, it's funny, like when you play guitar, you touch the end of your fingertips, and it's like you don't, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. You can like touch a hot cup of coffee, it doesn't hurt. Um, you, you can't feel. You can't feel what you're supposed to feel in that condition. You can't feel righteousness. You can't feel the longing and the, the calling for holiness of life. You can't feel any of that. But, verse 19, you're given over to sensuality. But that, listen, this is interesting. To use the word callous and then use the word sensual is almost like, what are you doing? Those are opposites, aren't they? How can you be so callous but then be so all about your senses? Oh, just because you're callous doesn't mean you don't have any senses or any sensuality to you. It's just that you're callous toward God in this. Oh, but man, you are given over to sensuality. 
for the practice of every kind of impurity that you can find, and you do that with greediness, it says. That's who I was before Jesus. That's who you were before Jesus. It's terrible. It's terrible. How about, um, let's skip Philippians 3. Drop down to Romans 5. Let's go back to Romans 5. Give you a couple. These are some other great words to add to what we were over there that help us understand who we were before Jesus came into our lives. Romans 5, verse 6. How does Paul describe our prior condition? Verse 6. For while we were still helpless. What is this over here? What am I? I am a helpless individual before God. I'm completely helpless before God. Um, Unable to do for myself in that condition what I need most before God. I cannot help myself. How about the end of verse 6? At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. What, What am I over here? I'm ungodly. I'm without God. Um, How about down in verse 8? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, I was a sinner. That's not a word to describe me, what I was over there. How about down to verse 10? If while we were, what? Enemies. And that makes total sense, doesn't it, now? Enemies? I mean, what kind of a person would be this way? who would have their mind and their flesh in complete agreement with the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air all bent on being hostile toward God. What do you call that towards God? It's an enemy. That's what I was before God. That's who you were before God. Helpless, ungodly, sinful. But I don't want to skip over this part. Um, At the right time. If there was ever a right time to die. It was when I was in this time. Right? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen, did, did he say, you know what, you need, to, you need to erase some of this stuff before I do anything for you, dude. Get some of this mess off of yourself, and then we'll talk. Does he say that? At the right time, Christ died for what kind of people? Sinners. Sinners. Ungodly. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Go to Romans 6, probably just a page over, verse 17. What were we before Christ? Verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were... Now watch this. What were we also over here? Oh, man. Can it get any worse? Yeah, it just keeps getting worse. You're a slave of sin. There it is. Slave of sin. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We're going to come back to this in a moment. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members to slaves, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. Whoa, stop. Do you know what else we did over there? We've been talking about your mind. We've been talking about your flesh all that is sinfully frail, and now he just mentioned members. Do you know what that includes? It includes your faculties, how you think, how you speak, but it also includes your body. You know what we did with even our body over here? We presented it as what we were. We presented it as slaves. You see that in verse 19? 
just as you presented your members as slaves. You looked at your hands, you looked at your feet, you looked at your ears, you looked at your eyes, you looked at everything about you, and you said, you know what, you're a slave, and I present you to sin. Wow. Um, Present members as slaves to sin. Do you see that? That's a sad, sad individual. And what, what did it result in? Verse 19. We presented as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, and all that came out from that was just more lawlessness. Uh, if we went to Titus 3, it would say, I, You once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending your life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. You could add all of those Who were you without Jesus Christ? You were an unmixed, sad individual. The reason that there are two like lines over here, and there's like two sets of lines, there's only one here, but there's two here. The reason for that is to show that in a moment, especially the members, if there's anything that's outward about you, it's your members. Who you are inwardly, at the heart level, who you are as a thinker, who you are as a man of the flesh, who sets your mind according to the flesh, you will express that outwardly to people through your members, through your body, through your eyes, through your conversation, through your thinking, through your emotions. Those are your outward members. And so one part stands for the inner you, the other line around it and on your diagram stands for the outer you. Do you see that on your on your chart? There's like a, a person inside of a person. Do you see that? Okay, there's the inner man, and then there's the outer man, the members. Okay? And what we're saying is, in that condition over here on the far left, there is no disagreement from the inside out. Your members are not in disagreement with your inside you. You are in complete agreement, no friction, all one color over there as gray. That's what I portrayed here as all blue. Okay? That's who you were before Jesus. Do you have any questions about that or comments before we move on to the most important part? Any clarification you want? By the way, you could go to it. I encourage you as you read your Bible, even just keep this, fold this, and put it in your Bible. And as you're reading through the New Testament and you come across a description, try to figure out where it is. What's Paul talking about? Is he talking about who I was here? Or is he talking about who I am here? Is he talking about life over here? Any questions? Okay, I'm going to push on. Feel free to interrupt. Oh, wait, we're not ready to go on to the second part yet. Oh, key characteristics. we got to describe this. Number two, key descriptions of this old condition. Unmixed, right? Unmixed condition. As we said, there's no disagreement. There's no friction anywhere between your mind, flesh, your understanding, your heart, um, even your outward members are not in disagreement with your mind or your heart or your flesh. Everything about you, there's no disagreement anywhere. Um, there's no fight then in this condition. Listen, no fight. There's no fight here at all. You know what there's not a fight for? There's no fight against sin because you love it so. And there's no fight for Jesus Christ because you do not love him so. There's no fight. There's no fight going on in, anywhere there. 
um, you are dominated by, this is a slave condition right here. Dominated by slave. It says explain members here. We already did that. Um, I was thinking about maybe doing it there. Um, and you know what you're unable to do here? You are unable to shepherd your heart away from sin and to God in this condition. You are unable to because you are in complete agreement with everything within you to not do that. You have no ability in that condition over there to kind of almost separate yourself from yourself to say, hey, I shouldn't be doing that. You are in complete agreement. It's not until the Spirit of God comes into your life and begins to convict you of sin that you all of a sudden start questioning you. You would never question you before that. You can't separate yourself from yourself. Spirit comes, you begin to get convicted, and you go, what I am? There's a problem. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. The gospel. Now we get to talk about everything inside here. What on earth has God done for this kind of a wretch like me? This is the best news of all. You ready to go to your next page? The gospel of Jesus. Let's talk about the roots of the gospel. I want you to go to the end of Luke. I want you to see something very interesting, uh, how Jesus... uh, Luke really... This is Luke's contribution to the New Testament. Uh, We went through Luke as a church, and now we're going through... uh, Acts, as you know. Um, But this is Luke's contribution between these two books. You'll see this as we walk through. These are the roots of gospel promises. The roots of the gospel are found here at this spot right here. And then you're going to see that there's going to be all kinds of fruit that grows from those roots forward. But these are the roots. Let's talk about the roots. There's three things. uh, Maybe it's like a tri-root. Okay, Jesus Christ crucified for sin. Okay, you see that first bullet point underneath there? That's the first part. This is key. This is the root of the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified for sins. Jesus raised from the dead and then proclamation of repentance or faith for the forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name. Those are the three key roots of the gospel. Now let me show you why that's so. Luke 24, verse 45. Jesus, he's raised from the dead, spending his last time with the disciples and he says um, here, or Luke says, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer. There's the first part. And that Christ would rise again from the dead on the third day. There's the second root of the gospel. And that, verse 47, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. There's the three roots of the gospel. Do you see that in Luke 24? Now, go to Luke's other writing. Go to Acts chapter 3. And watch how Luke unfolds that Peter believed this. Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 3, verse 14. Now watch this. Watch Peter hit on all three of these things. Uh, Acts 3, verse 14. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but you put to death the Prince of Life. There's the first root. The one whom God raised from the dead. There's the second root, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Um, Now drop down to verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, there's that first root again, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, what does he say? Repent. There's the third root. And return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order uh, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Listen. What did Peter preach? 
that root. Christ suffered, Christ was raised from the dead, and I'm preaching to you forgiveness of sins in repentance. Okay? Go over to Acts chapter 5, verse 30. Peter again. What does he say in Acts 5, verse 30? The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, there's the second root, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross, there's the first root. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance, there's the third root, and forgiveness of sins. Okay? Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead, and there is forgiveness for the one who repents or has faith in Jesus. There's the root of the gospel. Do you get that? Go to chapter 10, verse 39. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. Peter is with Cornelius. The gospel has gone to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles, and he is there. And now I wonder what Peter will emphasize as he is with them. These three roots. Listen for all three of them. Verse 39. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Root number one. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Root number two. And not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. To us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives what? Forgiveness of sins. Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead, forgiveness of sins for the one who repents and believes. The root of the gospel, those three roots of the gospel. Um, chapter 13. Paul is going to now take over, and Paul's going to bring the gospel. Let's see what Paul focuses on. Verse 29. Paul says, When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. There's the first point, or the first root of the gospel. But God raised him from the dead. There's the second root of the gospel. And then from verse 31 down to verse 37, he talks about, he justifies the resurrection from the Old Testament. Now look at verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Three roots of the gospel. Do you see this? Are you getting it? What are the three roots of the gospel? Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Forgiveness for you if you repent toward him and believe in his name. Do you get it? That's the root of the gospel. Go to chapter 17, verse 2. Paul is in Thessalonica. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, watch this, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to what? Suffer. And that what then had to happen? And rise again from the dead and saying what to them? I proclaim this Jesus to you. Now, he doesn't mention forgiveness of sin and repentance there, but if he's proclaiming Jesus, that's what he's proclaiming. Do you see a pattern? This is the root of the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead for forgiveness of sins. Now, there's a whole lot more that's built into that that we find out as we read the rest of the New Testament, and now that's what I want to talk about. And here's your one statement, and number two, you have to believe in this, and when you believe in this, this is what is all bound up in the gospel. I have a statement for you there. I believe my penalty was paid by a substitute to atone for my sin. Do you see that there in your paper? I believe that my penalty was paid by a substitute to atone for my sin. Right? This is all that is bound up in those three roots. Christ crucified, raised from the dead, and forgiveness of sin. It was so your penalty could be paid by a substitute to atone for your sin. Now let's take one of the, each of these words one at a time. Penalty. There is a penalty. Look, 
Look at this person. How can God be just and not punish that? How can you, what you made of yourself, what you earned and what you loved, how could he not judge? A God who says, I won't judge that condition, you don't want. Because he's a, he's a judge that you wouldn't want your kids to stand before in a court of law here for a speeding ticket. You want a God who is just, you want a God who is right and who will not flex the rules when somebody breaks the rules against you. This God must judge that. And you can look up these passages. I'm going to let you do that. In Acts 17, um, says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man. It's Jesus. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against the ungodliness of men and unrighteousness of men. Chapter 2, verse 1 says judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things as these sins. Uh, we have been saved from the wrath of God in, in chapter 5, verse 9. In Ephesians 2, verse 3, we were called children of wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that he rescues us from the wrath to come. Listen, there is wrath. There is a penalty. There is a judgment that will come. And it must be paid. The good news is, for you, you didn't have to pay it. Because a substitute paid it for you. That's the second part. Paid by a substitute. What kind of a substitute paid it? A lamb. Old Testament imagery. The lamb of God was a substitute lamb who shed his blood so that the penalty could be paid. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. I think Hebrews probably, the author of Hebrews does probably the best throughout the New Testament to make this clear. All of those passages that are there are either going to focus on a substitute, someone in the place of me, on my behalf, in my for my sake, uh, or it'll focus on blood being shed because the lamb was slain. Or it'll say something about a lamb. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 26. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Why is our high priest so different? Because our high priest is also the lamb. Our high priest is also the lamb. Look at the end of verse 17. Because he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. He offered up himself. Go over to chapter 9, verse 11 of Hebrews. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered to the great, uh, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats did he enter, not through the blood of goats and calves, but he entered through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? I drop down to verse 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Listen, your penalty cannot be paid without the shedding of blood. That's the way God set it up. That's who he is. And what blood was he thinking about from the foundation of the world? Goats? Jesus. 
His blood was the first blood. He just gave a pattern, a picture, a shadow of blood, the best blood to come through all of the Old Testament sacrifices. Verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Jesus would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested. He's been revealed for a reason, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly wait him. Listen, you die this, you die once, and after this comes judgment. It is the right thing to come for this type of person. But Christ came and he died, and he died for that, to take that away, so that when he comes again, he will come without reference to sin. That means when he comes, he's coming for you and he's not thinking about your sin anymore. Why? Because he already took care of it. He had to be paid by a substitute. Let's take the word atonement. Atonement. Key words here. We're not going to cover all of the, the passages. What does expiation mean? Well, let's back. What does atonement mean? Yeah, talk about that. If you take the word atonement and kind of break it uh, apart, at one. What is atonement? It is God's work to make you at one with him. So your penalty had to be paid by a substitute so that you could become at one with God. So that your sin could be atoned for. Now there are key words in the New Testament that tell us what atonement is. And here they are. Expiation. Just write this somewhere by the word expiation. What, what is expiation? It's this. Taking away guilt and sin. Taking away guilt and sin. If you are going to be at one with Jesus Christ, with God, you have to have your guilt and your sin taken away. It must be expiated. Okay? Hebrews 9, verse 26 is great. He has been revealed to put away sin, to put away sin. That's expiation. Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You need that desperately. If you want to have a relationship with God, your sin must be put away from you. Propitiation. What is propitiation? You can write this. Wrath satisfied. Wrath satisfied. If there is any hope for you to have a relationship with God, God needs to have taken his cup of wrath and completely poured it out, shook it dry, so that when he looks at it, he is satisfied. I don't have another ounce of wrath to pour out. If you have any hope of being with God, when he looks at you, he must look at his cup and go, huh, I have nothing to be angry with you about. Why? Because your sin was taken away, and he poured out all of his wrath on, your, on his son in your place. Because all of this, he made him who knew no sin to what? To be all of that so that he might reconcile us, make us right before God. He had to pour out the wrath that we had earned. He had to pour it out, though, on the substitute. He had to satisfy his wrath. Another key word is redemption. What does it mean to redeem? It means bought with the price 
of blood. Bought with the price of blood. Bought with the price of blood. Another word I like to use also alongside the word price of blood is the, is the word currency. Bought with the currency of blood. Um, there's only one thing that God would take to redeem, to buy someone out of the slave market. He says, look, this is the slave market of sin, and we have been redeemed. We, we, have, we were bought with a price out of that. And there was only a, a price, and there was only a currency that God was looking for. The currency God was looking for was Jesus' blood. Your blood he's not interested in. Your blood won't work. An animal's blood won't work. There's only one blood that will work. It's the currency of his blood, and it had to be the right price. Reconciliation. What does reconcile mean? To overcome the separation. If you have any hope of being with God, you must be reconciled to him. God has to overcome the separation that exists between you and him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20 is an excellent passage to look at on reconciliation. Sanctification. If you have any hope of being with God, you need to be sanctified, once and for all sanctified, positional sanctification. God must take you, look, this is anything but holy. You need a whole brand new standing. You need to be taken out of that. Your sin needs to be separated from you. Wrath needs to be satisfied. You need to be redeemed from this. You need to be reconciled. And God needs to set you in a place of holiness before him. Sanctified, to be set apart for holiness. To be set apart in holiness, once and for all. So what do you write in this? You don't have enough room to write in yours, but you write these key words. Um, This is expiation. This is propitiation. Um, This is redemption. This is reconciliation. Uh, this is sanctification, and it's positional sanctification. Do you understand what we mean when we say that? What we mean by this is God just once and for all, in one shot, in a what? An event, he just makes you holy in his sight. This is not a process of becoming holy. Where is the process of becoming holy? This sanctification over here. The word sanctify is used in two different ways in the New Testament. First Corinthians 1 uses it several times, and in chapter 5 as well, where Christ is for us our sanctification. He has become for us sanctification. We are once and for all set apart. Okay? Now, you have to believe. You have to believe that a penalty, your penalty was paid by a substitute to atone for your sin. You have to actually believe that. It's true, but you have to believe it. You have to entrust yourself to it. And what's the key word that is tied with belief? In the New Testament, justification. What is justification? You can write this down. It's to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. It's a judge standing over you saying, I know you're not righteous by what you've done. But I, with my authority, as one who watches over the law, I declare you so. It's not a judge saying, hey, if you'll do these ten things, you will become righteous. It is God saying, no, I just declare you so. 
With my power, I just declare you righteous in my sight. That happens at faith. Let's look at Galatians 2 on that. Uh, Turn to Galatians 2 on justification. And then we'll take a short break in just a moment. Okay, guys, you're hanging in there, and I know this is a lot, but this goes somewhere very important. Galatians 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Listen, God did not say, here's my law, here's Mosaic law. Now, do it, and let's see if you can become righteous before me. God did not do that. Now, did the the Pharisees try to do that? Did the Jews distort that? Absolutely. But that is never why God gave the law. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Listen, what is going to happen if you give to this person right here a nice brand new Bible, and you give them some nice new clothes to wear, and you make them start coming to church, and you tell them, here are the Ten Commandments. Go for it, buddy. What is that going to do to that person? The law has no power to change that unrighteous status. It will only frustrate sin and make more sin come That is not the gospel. That is not good news. That is bad news. That is another gospel. It is a false gospel. It is heresy. And it is damning. The gospel says, I will expiate for you. You don't deserve it. I will propitiate my wrath through my son for you. You don't deserve it. Uh, I will redeem you with the price of my son's blood. You're worth nothing as you are, but I'm going to do it and pay the price. Uh, Reconcile you to myself. You don't earn it. I'm going to make you holy, not on the basis of anything you've done. I'm just going to declare you holy, and I'm going to declare you right in my sight. Grace. It's an event. This is not a process. You don't, like, work through this, like, through weeks and months and years and decades. God enters in on the road to Damascus takes a man like this, makes him blind for a moment, and when he comes and he sees, he's listening. It's an event. It's the gospel. The phrase right here is penal substitutionary atonement. You need to be theological men that you understand that. When somebody says to you, hey, what's the gospel? In your mind, you got three pegs. Here's the gospel. Let me tell you what the gospel is about. I got three roots and I got three pegs. Uh, Jesus Christ crucified for sins, rose from the dead, and there's forgiveness of sins uh, through repentance and faith in him. Now let me tell you what that means. A penalty had to be paid by a substitute to atone for your sin. Now just fill that up. That's the gospel. Roots of the gospel, right here. Okay? Now, again, that's event. Yeah? When is the, uh, if the person on the left, you know, regenerate? Uh, when is the, uh, God starts working in his heart? Uh, that aspect of, of the event. Yeah. When, when he starts feeling conviction, he's saying, That's a great question. We're, I'm, we're going to add uh, on your next page, we're going to add regeneration and some other words. Um, it's still all of that. I know, I know this. 
Um, I, when I was coming to the end of whatever I was here, I was really convicted about what I was. And you know what I did with that? I did everything I could in my power with all of this to change it, and I was still rebelling against God. So get this, even when I had conviction of sin, because of my con- my condition, I was still in rebellion with that conviction. I thought, I can change this. I can change this. It is still an event moment where you're going to cross the line. The only way that anything is going to make any sense over here is if you just get born again. Right? So how does conviction of sin work and all that? I'm going to put it all over here. And we're in here, I don't know. But I do know that it's not a process of getting it. Is that process of where you go from, I'm going to try to fix it, to I can't? Well, faith and repentance right. is this line yeah. where you say, I look away from me and I entrust myself to Jesus and what he did at the cross to save me. And how all of that works in between there, I, I, you know, I don't know. But um, when you're talking about it theologically and biblically, it's a straight, clear line. When I look back on my life and when you look back on yours, it's, it's maybe look, feel like it's a little fuzzy, and that's okay. But the reality is what the Bible says, not my experience. Right? Not your experience. All right, let's, let's talk about a couple other key words that go with this. Uh, regeneration, adoption, and union with Christ. Regeneration is being born again. That word would go right here. You're thinking, will this fire hose ever shut off? No. It's not going to fit. Regeneration, you've got adoption here. Look at all these Asians. Asian, 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 Asian. Anyway. Adoption, and then you've got union with Christ. That's the one I want to focus on for just a moment. Union with Christ. You have, like for instance, Ephesians 2, verse 5, talks about a general union with Christ. He made us alive together with him. When God finally made you alive, because you were what over here? Dead. He just made you alive. When he did it, he made you alive together with Jesus. In other words, he didn't make you alive apart from Jesus. He put you with Jesus. Um, You're also uh, united with Christ in three key areas. In his death, um, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer, somehow I was there? Yeah, somehow I was there at the cross. I I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, right? Um, So we were with him at the cross. We were with him in burial. We were buried with him, Romans 6, right? So there's union with Christ in the death. What has to happen to this man as he is? What should happen to him? I'll tell you what, dig six feet down, dig dig a big deep hole, put him in it, and cover him up. Don't let this man come back, God says. And he did it. How did he do it? He crucified me with Christ. He buried me with Christ. And then what else have I been united with Christ? Come out of the grave. Was Jesus, when he came out of the tomb, was was he different than the Jesus that went into the tomb? 
Yeah, he was different. Not, not better, necessarily, in terms of his moral and his character and things like that. He was the same. But he had a body that was better. So what his, his resurrection is a pattern for us in this. When we come out of the grave with Christ, so to speak, in our union with Christ, we are somebody brand new. Let me ask you this. When Jesus came out of the tomb, and he could eat, and you could still see the holes in his hands, and he would be in a room, and then he would just be gone. That condition. Could he ever go back to the condition he was before he died? Can he go back to that condition before he died? No. He is forever the risen Lord Jesus in that condition. When you are raised with Christ, can you ever go back to this condition? Slave of sin. Mind set on the flesh only in complete agreement all the time. Walking according to the course of this world. A slave to sin. Can you go back to this unmixed condition? Jesus, God comes to you and says, here's what your problem is. I'm going to unite you with Christ. I'm going to crucify that. I'm going to bury that. And I'm going to raise you up from the dead. You know what that did? That was such a powerful work of God with union with Christ that God says, you can never go back to this unmixed condition of sin. You cannot lose that, uh, what you've got here. You cannot go back to that. Now, do you still sin? That's a different question. But you cannot go back to a slave of sin, completely dominated by sin. Will you say yes to sin? Yes, you will. But can you go back and be a slave to that? No, you can't. So these are all, that's the gospel. And this is what God must do. Look, do you see what God had to do to change what you were? Do you see what effort and what quality of work he did? And his son, his son's blood for you. And you didn't deserve any of it. You deserve something far different than what you got. Look at the gospel. Now, let's take a break and then we'll talk about this. Okay? Quick five minute break and we'll come back. Okay? We'll move on to number three now. So we talked about who you were without Christ. We then talked about the gospel event, um, the roots of the gospel, and penal substitutionary atonement. And now we're going to talk about the impact or the implications of that on who you are now. Here's what's interesting. Here's the gospel I heard that when I was 19 that I believed and, I, and, I, and God saved me. Um, if you um, will believe in Jesus, you will have, you'll have forgiveness of sins for everything that you were and did, and you will have eternal life with God. You'll go to heaven. So the gospel that I heard and believed and and, and, and loved, look, I'm not diminishing those. It spoke to all of my past, and it spoke to all of my future when I die. But what did that gospel say about today? Believe in Jesus and you will have forgiveness of sins and you will have eternal life. You'll, you'll go to heaven. What does that say about, okay, now, what, what, what am I supposed to do today? Does the gospel have any impact on my life today? So what is all this language of preach the gospel to yourself? I mean, look, 
it, it saved me from my past and it gives me a secure future, but it did, the gospel that I heard didn't say anything about why I would need to rehearse it. Every time I hear the gospel at church, I tune out because, well, I've already got saved by it. He must be talking to unbelievers right now. Um, I'm speaking, you know, as if insane. Um, the gospel has everything to do with who you are right now, right here. Okay, that's what we want to talk about. These are the gospel achievements in me for a new way to live right now. I want to start with Romans 8. So skip the Romans 6 for just a minute. Go to Romans 8. Let's go back to Romans 8. Verses 9 down to 15. Watch this. Verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh. Paul is talking to people in which the gospel event has taken place and they are somebody new. You are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Whoa! I see something already massively different. Watch this. Spirit in me. Ah! Guess what? Mixed condition! Now there's something else, there's someone else in me. There was nobody else in me over here. This was an unmixed condition. I was a mess. There was only no friction going downstream over the waterfall, all the water going down into judgment. That was me. I was swimming that direction. Loved it so. Now the Spirit's in me? That's a mixed condition. That's not this condition. Mixed condition. Spirit in me. Verse 9. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Uh, verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Christ is in you again there. Do you see that? Oh, it says Christ is in you. We've got to put that up there. Spirit in me. Uh, Christ in me. Huh. That's a pretty big difference. Two members of the Godhead are in me. Verse 11, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Um, You're going to have life with the spirit who is in you. Verse 12, so then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh. Look. You are not under obligation to this anymore. You have been separated from this. The Spirit of God is in you. Christ is in you. You are not in obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh anymore. Verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. If you're going to live according to this, you must, you're going to die. You, you, you're going to die before God. You're going to die in every possible way before God. But if the Spirit, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Watch this. Um, here, what can I do in this? By the Spirit, I can put to death the deeds of the body. Huh. I've got a body. And it has deeds in it that need to be put to death still. There's, and this is why I have two different colors. This is why you have the two different colors on this section. Because it's a mixed condition. You have a body and there is still sin in it. But 
you have the spirit in you now who allows you, enables you to put to death sin, put to death the deeds of the body, sinful deeds. How is this different? This is a new creation. This is a new creation. And it is far better than this one. No disagreement anywhere in here. Now there's disagreement. Now here's the problem that Christians get into. We think that we should have gone from this unmixed to this one. What I believed, why wouldn't I just go from this unmixed condition to this unmixed condition? That'd be great. That'd be my plan. If I'd written the Bible, that would be my plan. I would never have thought to make the new creation this, a mix. I would have thought, no, the new creation needs to be something like this. But what God did is God said, I'm going to take you from an unmixed condition. I'm going to make it brand new. Now, when you think of brand new, you think of it's never been touched. It's perfect all the way through and through, shiny. God says, well, yeah, but this is new. This is new in the sense that it's nothing like the old. The new you are now is a mixed condition. You have the ability to resist sin. You have the ability to turn away from sin. You never have the ability over here. This is why I say you can never go back to this condition. Will you go back to sin that is still in you? Yes, every day you will. But you cannot go back to an unmixed condition in which you never resisted sin. Why can't you? Because look what God did for you. Look what God did for you. You think God's got, he's got a crack in that foundation somewhere? There's no crack in that wall. There's no way to burrow back through that wall and get over there. He made you into something new. He put his spirit in you. He put his son in you. You are something brand new. You're flawed. You're mixed in your condition before Christ. But you are brand new, and he has given you everything you need to be able to live this life in the gospel now. Okay, let's go on. can't remember where I was. got so excited about that for a moment. Let's go back to Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 15. Watch this. What shall we say then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? You know, you know what Paul was battling? Paul was battling Pharisees who were believing, believing in Jesus, and they were saying, you know what? We've got a solution for this. This is a problem. Look at the lawlessness there. You know what that lawless condition needs? Let's give it the law. Because if you don't give it the law, they're going to keep on sinning. And Paul's saying, I don't want the law. I want grace. Oh, well, then you know what you're going to do. You're just saying, it's a free-for-all in your sin, Paul. And Paul's saying, no, you don't understand what grace is. Fundamentally, you don't even understand what grace is. You know what grace does? Grace does all of this and makes you someone brand new. And so Paul says, if we're under grace, we're we're not going to keep living in sin, verse 2. And in verse 14... Um, 15, shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves. Your slaves are the one you obey. Here's what Paul's saying. When you're a slave, you present yourself to your master. And now let me give you the two options in life, Paul says. Look at verse 16. Here's the two op- options in life. Your slaves are the one you obey. You're either a slave of sin, resulting in death, or you are a slave of obedience resulting in righteousness. Here's your options. 
You can be over here a slave of sin, and it's bad news. Or you can be now a slave, what does he say in verse 16? Of obedience. Here's, write this down. You know what you are now? You are a slave of obedience. Did you know that? That's what the Bible says you are. What if you don't know that's what the Bible says you are? Are you going to live that out very well? What if you don't know you're a slave of obedience? If you don't know it, you can't live it out very well. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, watch this, you became obedient from the heart. I became obedient from the heart. Did you know that? This is who you are in Christ. Obedient from the heart. To that form of teaching to which you were committed. What was that form of teaching to which they were committed? It was, I think it's Romans. I think it's what he's teaching us, the gospel. Uh, verse 18, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Oh, you got a new slave status. You know what else you are? You're a slave of righteousness. So I got a question. When Jesus set you free, what did he set you free for? Two. He set you free from sin so that you would what? You've been set free to become what? To become what? To become what? You went from one slave status to what? Another slave status. You're not free like you're free from God, like you're a free being, like God is an equal choice and and evil's an equal choice and I'm the kind of this equal person separate from them and I'm free. I can no, you're not free. You are set free from sin so that you can become a slave of obedience, a slave of righteousness. Watch this. Drop down to um, verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Oh, I love this. Enslaved to God. That's your new status. This is your new condition. God gave you a mixed condition in which you as a slave to him would serve him. Now listen, that's kind of weird. If you had a chance to make a slave... Would you want one that would sometimes disobey you? If you had the choice, would you make one that would sometimes disobey you or would you make one that just obeyed you all the time? I would make one. I don't know what... But look, God did this. There's something in his mind. Don't question him like he's a fool. He's not. We're going to get to this. Why would he do this? He must have a good reason to not take us from this condition all the way over to here immediately. What is his reason? What's going on in the holy mind of God that he would say, I'm going to put you in a mixed condition, make you my slave. Sometimes you won't obey me. But now you have the ability to obey me. I gave it to you. You are a brand new creature who now, though mixed, can obey me. Why would he do that? Go to Galatians 5. Jeff's already touching on it, maybe so he could be glorified. There's, look, would God do anything that he does not derive glory from? So there's something in this here that he is getting glory for. Galatians 5, verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit. Okay, there's another something you can put. Walk. I can walk by the Spirit. And when I do that, what happens? What does it say? Verse 16. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Listen, tell me when over here, look over here, buddy. 
When over here did you not carry out the desire of the flesh? Never! You only ever carried out the desire of the flesh. That's what you set your mind on. But now you can walk by the Spirit. And when you do that, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 17, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Do you know what that is? That's friction. That's a fight. God saved you into a fighting condition. That is great. When you were in a place where you couldn't fight at all for what was right, you didn't care about it, for God to save you and put you in a condition where you can now fight for it, that's beautiful. That is great. That is kindness from God. That is a big step up. Is it the best you're going to get? No, but it's it's huge. This is life. That was death. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Do you ever feel that way? I'm not doing the things that I please. Why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? You ever read Romans 7? Why do I keep doing Who will set me free from this body that just seems to be still touched by death? Jesus will. He will. It's as good as done. These are in opposition to one another. The spirit and the flesh are in opposition to one another. The flesh is still here. Your sinful frailty before God is still there. But the spirit is in you. Christ is in you. You can walk by the spirit. You're a slave to righteousness. He made you that way. You didn't make yourself that way. You became obedient from the heart. That means it was done to you. Um... Ephesians 2.10. I'm going to skip a couple here. Ephesians 2.10. Familiar verse. We are his workmanship. What is this condition? Well, we can say it's his workmanship. This is his workmanship, guys. This is what he made you. We are his workmanship. Um, what, what about this workmanship? Uh, it's created. God created this. See the word creation here? God created this. Uh, how did he create it? He only created it in Christ Jesus. So he didn't do any of this creating separate from his son Jesus. He created this condition in his son, verse 10. Now why did he create this in Jesus? What was on his mind? I'm going to create... I'm going to have a, a, my workmanship before me. I'm going to create in Christ Jesus. i got something on my mind. What am I going to use it for? What's it say? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For good works. Why did God make this? Why did God make me this? Why did God make you this? Say it. For good works. Does God know how to make something do good works? Um, This is all for good works. God made it that way. What about these good works? When did he make these, watch this, for good works, which he prepared beforehand? Um, You know what he says? God doesn't come to you and say, okay, now I've got some good ideas in mind for you, some good works for you to do, but I'd like to know what your ideas are for the good works. What kind of good works would you like to do? Let's collaborate on this. You tell me the good works that you think would be good, and I'll tell you the ones I think are good. 
No, he just created these good works. He prepared them beforehand. And, and in Ephesians, I think the context is before the foundation of the world. These are his good works that he had planned all along. Verse 10, so that we would what? Okay, so he created us for good works so that we would then what? How does it end? So that we would actually live them out. We actually have to live this out. Now, what did God, did, did God make a mistake here? Did he leave anything out? The only thing that you could contend with, maybe, is why is there still sin? But he says, no, I, I, you're my workmanship. I've created you in Christ Jesus. And on my mind, the only reason I created you is for good works. And you know what? Walk in them. Be obedient. Live this new life. I made it. I came up with the good works. I didn't leave anything out. Ephesians 4. Verse 24. Uh, Let's look at verse 22. Lay aside the old self. Here's another one we could add. You know what that is? That's old man. Old man. You laid aside the old man. Do you know when you did that? And that wasn't a process. That was an event. You laid aside the old man. When did you do that? When you repented and believed. You laid aside the old man. That one is being corrupted in accordance with lust and deceit, it says, doesn't it? In verse 22. What's this called here? You put on the new man. Or the new self. Now he's going to describe this new self. Watch this new self in verse 24. Which is literally according to God. This condition you are in, this mixed condition in Christ, it's according to God. There's one standard for it that God had, and it was himself. This is according to God. He made it. He wasn't looking at any other pattern when he made it. He was thinking of himself. I'm going to make this according to me. Verse 24, and it has been created. Okay, this is a new creation. It has been created in what? Righteousness. God made this. In righteousness. It's like he did this in the righteousness room. Or he went to the bottom of the righteousness pool and that's where he made it. He made it in righteousness and holiness. So what should be the marks on this person? Righteousness and holiness. And the reason you have several here on your paper, on your diagram, is because what? It's it's a progress. It's a process. This part is a process. The biggest mistake Christians get into is when they mix this stuff up. This becomes a process of becoming justified, of, of becoming, of, of, of trying over time to satisfy God's wrath. No, that's a vent. How many fingerprints, sets of fingerprints are on this right here? One. Whose fingerprints? God's alone, right? His fingerprints alone in all this. How many fingerprints on this? Two sets of fingerprints. Whose fingerprints? I'm helping you out. And you. Because he says, walk in them. Pick up these good works of mine and do them. I created this in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, verse 25, he has a whole list of commands in chapter 4. Based on this, based on what I made this new man to be, here's what I want you to do. Pick this up. Put your fingerprints on this. Lay aside falsehood. Could you ever lay aside falsehood over here? You didn't want it. You loved it so. Now you can. Why? 
Because he made you into something brand new that you never were before. Colossians 3 does the same thing. Goodness, where do I take you? Go to 2 Corinthians 4. We'll finish with this one. We might pick some of these up another time. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. When did God say that? Creation. Genesis 1. That's the God who said, or who has shown into our hearts. Okay, so the one who made light shine out of darkness is the one who took his light and shone it into our hearts. Um, Verse 7 where am I at? Verse 4. I got all lost where I was. Verse 6. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's shown into our hearts so that we would see what we need to see and know what we need to know about the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's conversion. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. You know what you are? You are an earthen vessel uh, with a treasure inside you know what that is? That's a mixed condition. What were you over here? Just an earthen vessel. What are you over here? One with a treasure in the earthen vessel. Why? Now this is the this is the key. Why did God do it this way? He tells us, verse seven. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power might not be what? Not be from me, but be of God. Why? What does God want to put on display in all this? God displays his power. There was something in God's mind that said, I, as holy God, as God of all glory, want to display my power, and here's my plan. I'm going to save these wretches, and I'm going to put them in this mixed condition where they're going to sometimes sin, so that the power will all be seen as mine when they depend upon me and say no to sin. If God had leapfrogged over all of this to there, we would have never seen that part of his power in his being. Why did God do this this way? Not to make life difficult for you. Not to make life harder for you. He made it better for you. What you are fighting against sin is so much better than when you couldn't fight against sin. Do you understand? All right. Number two, the gospel's work is a process. This is sanctification. This is a process. You, when you when you start off, you see on your chart how the guy on the left, right here, he, he's a little more gray than he is yellow, right? That's me when I first got saved. Hopefully, as I grow in Christ, I'm becoming more and more what? Like Jesus. I'm becoming more and more holy. Um, I'm doing different things with my outer members now that I, that I didn't do before. And my inner man is being renewed. Second uh, Corinthians chapter four. We didn't look at that verse sixteen. Well, uh, you, we got to look at that one. Second Corinthians four verse sixteen. Watch this. Therefore, we do not lose heart, 
But though our outer man is decaying, and that's the outside part of your diagram on those, on those guys, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed. Inner man renewed. Guess what this condition is? This mixed condition is a renewable condition. Ah, that makes sense now. This condition over here could never be made new as it was. There was nothing to renew. It was stale, dead, gross, disgusting. But this one, this one needs to be renewed. Not remade, but renewed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? Uh, Ephesians 4.23. We were taught to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This is a renewable condition. Why did God put us in a condition that needs to be renewed? Because it gives him the opportunity to display his power as we fight against sin. As we fight against sin. All right, let's get some key descriptions. You've got them there. See them in number three. This is a mixed condition. Is there a fight here now? Yeah. Is there, oh yeah, there's absolutely a fight. You have the spirit in you, and the spirit says its desires against the flesh, and the flesh against the spirit. Praise God you live in a condition in which you can fight. Guys, you can fight now. You can fight against sin now. You can fight for holiness and fight for obedience and fight for Jesus. Why? Because of everything that God did in the gospel to make you this way right now. You're not that man anymore. You can't become that man. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things pass away. That doesn't mean the old sins are forever gone. It means the old condition that you were as an unmixed man is gone. Not in the process of becoming gone. It is gone. Because you can never go back to that unmixed condition. It's gone, guys. It's dead. Can you? Do you still have a remnant of sin within you in this mixed condition? Yes. Not the same thing as being a man in an unmixed condition. Not the same thing. You cannot go back to that. The old things have passed away. Behold what? New things have come. Guys, this is what the gospel has done for you today. You can fight. You must have even given everything you need to fight. It was created according to God. It's his workmanship. He has given you his spirit. What more could God give you to help you fight against sin than what he has given you? He's given you his word. What else about this condition? Oh, here's a, here's a key word, entangled. Guys, you can still get entangled in sin. But being entangled in sin is not the same thing as being a slave to sin, being under the dominion of sin. Entangled. Hebrews 12, 2. Let us run the race of endurance. Uh, um, let's lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily <coughs> entangled. We can get entangled. And we do. And you will. But you can be set free from that entanglement. Um Galatians 6.1, if, if a brother is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore him with a spirit of gentleness. You can get caught. Um, you are enslaved to God, righteousness and obedience. And here's the whole point, guys. Here's what I want you to get. What is this all about? Look, we're not even going to talk about what happens when you die. 
how much better. Look, do you long for heaven? Because you, you won't have anything fighting against you to, to get Jesus. You just unrestricted path and pursuit of Jesus. Nothing in the way. Keeping you back. We have a lot to talk about on that. Can you shepherd your heart over here in this condition? Why are you called to shepherd your heart? Because you must. God has put you into a condition in which you can now see what you're doing. You you have the ability to, to separate yourself from yourself, so to speak. It sounds funny. But you can, by the Spirit, see what's going on in your life that you never could see before. And your inner man constantly needs to be renewed. That's why you shepherd your heart. Why do you open your Bible in the morning and you rub the sleep out of your eyes and you find a quiet spot where nobody else is and you open your Bible and you pray? Why then do you pray, God, I must find you? I have your word open so that I can find you. I need you this morning. Why do you even need to say that? Because you still have the drag of sin on you. And it will make your heart, your inner man, become cold. It will make you become numb to Jesus. It will never take you back over here. But you can become numb to Christ, indifferent, unfeeling, if you do nothing with yourself. If you do nothing with your soul, if you do nothing with your heart, you will drift into coldness. You will become entangled in sin. You will become indifferent to sin. And the next thing you know, you'll be buddies with sin. And when somebody tries to talk to you about it, you're going to be defensive about your sin. You can become that. That's not the same thing as what you once were. It is a horrible condition to be in, in this middle condition. But you must fight to shepherd your heart every day. You get up and you remind yourself of what God did for you in the gospel. You remind yourself of what you once were. You remind yourself that you need to be renewed. God, make my heart warm towards you today. Why does my heart grow cold? Do you have a good answer for that? Why does your heart grow cold towards God? It's like you don't even have to do anything to make it grow cold. It's just like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's like you realize you haven't thought about God all day. Why is it that way? Is it because you're still this man? I hope not. It's because you're this man. It's a mixed condition. It's going to happen. The sooner you just grab a hold of this, agree with it, and submit to it under God's word, and start fighting it, the better life goes. If you do nothing in a stream where the current is raging downstream, if you float, tell me where you go downstream. If you fight against the current as fast as you can, as hard as you can, where do you go? Sometimes you may feel like you're not going backwards, but you're just staying there. You ever feel like that in the Christian life? That's a mixed condition. And sometimes when you fight with all your might, you just make a little bit of progress. But you know what? Is that better than where you were? And as you sweat and as you labor under fighting against sin and fighting for Jesus, you long for this. You long for heaven. You long, you, you like Paul, you know, to live as Christ, to die is better. It's just better. But if you don't shepherd your heart, men, you're going to go downstream and your life is going to look more like this man over here, mostly flesh. Paul referred to the Corinthians. You're, you're still fleshly. 
I wish I could speak to you like you're men, but it's like you're still babies. The writer of Hebrews says, um, I should be able to feed you meat now, but you still just need milk. Look, guys, if you do nothing, that's where you will stay. You will just fall to that. That is the gravity that will pull you in that direction. If you do, do you have to feed sin for sin to grow? Sin just grows. It's like mold in a dark, moist piece of bread in a dark cupboard. It'll just grow. You don't have to do anything to it. You don't have to go in there and add anything more to it. It'll just do it itself. But you have to work. You have to labor to gain Jesus, to know Jesus in a, in a relationship way. You have to work to grow in holiness of life, to become obedient. Guys, shepherd your heart to the word of God, to meet with the God of the word. Why can you even do that? Because of this. And that's why I wanted to start with this this year, because this is the, the foundation under why we even shepherd our hearts. Now, you are in a brain coma, I'm sure. Do, do you have any questions, any comments you want to make? Daniel? Yes. Um, so whether it's someone that's uh, stage four in this process or, I guess, walk away from the faith or whatever, it's trying to be aware of the condition, um, and they seem to have been, seem to have had an It's a great question. Did you guys hear it? Do you understand the question? Sometimes people that we walk with in church and in life, they, they look like they look like me, they sound like me, they sound like you, they they look like they're growing. I, I feel like I'm growing. Sometimes they look like they're growing better than I'm growing um, and, and progressing. And then all of a sudden something happens and they just, it's like they, they just bail out and it, it just comes clear back in this direction, right? Now, you, you don't know the heart. You'll never be able to see inside to be able to say definitively like God can say. They were never saved, or well, they are, but they're this very immature, uh, in a dangerous spot, Christian. I think Hebrews six speaks to this. Um, I think there's a category in the New Testament where there are people who look like they have tasted of this stuff, but they actually have not. Um, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, uh, these are interesting words: enlightened partakers of the Holy Spirit, taste of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, that the power of God um, that is in the age to come that's being applied in the church now to live a new life, this power that God's putting on display, that they've, they've seen something of that and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Here's an illustration. The ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, it receives a blessing from God. But if that ground yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and is close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Now we hear that and we say, wow, once enlightened um, partakers of the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the good word of, the, of God, the powers of the age to come. That, that's Christian language, isn't it? Verse 9. But... In contrast, 
He started off, he said, in the case of those who have been this way, he now says in verse 9, but beloved. Ah, who's he talking about? Now he says, beloved. We are convinced of better things concerning you. There are those who looked like they were walking this way. But we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. In other words, I'm I'm convinced about the things of salvation concerning you. In other words, the things that I just said, enlightened, partakers of, uh, seeing the power of God, uh, that's not accompanying salvation. There is a category for somebody to be near this work of the Spirit of God in people. There is a category for people to be near and have some degree of enlightenment, but not be illuminated by the Spirit of God. God is not unjust to forget your work and the love with which you have shown his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Um, There's a big contrast that is being made there between those who look like they walk and then they fall away. Um, It's possible for some to have never been saved and they were trying to do it here and they looked like us, but they went out from us so that it might be shown that they were not of us. First John says, and then there are some people who just do it and, and they fall away for a while and they just they live a really fleshly life, but they're saved. And your point is to treat them on the basis of their profession. If they, if they claim to know Christ and you appeal to everything, look, here's what, you, here's what your hope is in every counseling situation, in every shepherding situation with somebody. If they indeed are a new man, a new creation, that new creation comes equipped with things that... If you set in front of it, it will love. It will grow to love. If you set obedience in front of someone, if you put grace in front of this person, it will warm the heart over time. So your job as a Christian for someone who is living a slacker life is to come to them with the gospel, is to come to them with the grace of God, is to come to them with, with, with the, the words of Christ on how they are to live. It's to remind them of what God has done to this. You give that to them and things will begin to change. Um, and that's what you do. You labor in their life. Gus, did you have a question? Yeah, it was kind of going along the same kind of topic. Romans 8, 13, you could just kind of expand on the conditional statement there. Well, in talking to the brother, Yeah. If, yeah. So then, brethren. Uh, Romans 8, uh, 13 and 14. Is it 13 years? 13. I want to back up to verse 12. So then, brethren. Okay, so who's he talking to? Christians. We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I think what he's saying there is... um, if you're living according to the deeds, because we just talked about that before, if you're living in a sense that you are according to the flesh in an unmixed condition, you're going to die. But, contrast, if you are living by the Spirit, or whatever he says in verse 13, how does he say it? So it's like a Jesus Christ Um, No, the if is, well, ask your question again. I, I, I don't want to... Yeah, it's saying, if you are living this way, then you will die. Okay? But, if you are living this way by the Spirit, 
you will live. And I don't think it just means necessarily, and I'd have to look more and think about this more carefully, I don't think it just means you'll live after you die. I think it means that, that you get the life that we are to have in Christ. Guys, we have gone way past, or not way past, but we've gone past it. And it is my intention to be able to have some small group time with you. Will you take your um, homework sheet out, please? And look at that. I, want to, I want to make sure that you understand what to do on that. It's, it's a white sheet. And it'll say, do Saturday, September 22nd. You see that? Try and find mine. There it is. Okay. I just have some questions for you that I want you to think through. I want you to answer them really well, um, thoroughly. Give some good thought to it. Put your name on your paper. Um, Have this done and ready in two weeks when we come back together. Um, just be honest and transparent about what are you doing when your Bible's open? How often is your Bible open? How, what, are your, what are your times with the Lord look like in, in, when you have the Word of God open? These questions will just run you through some of that. Um, your main assignment in build is, is to um, primarily pick a reading plan, and it's in the back of Section 1, or Discipline 1 in your notebook. There are several different reading plans, and what we want you to do is pick a reading plan um, and you may be on one already, and if you're already on a reading plan that takes you through the Bible, then stay on it. Don't change a thing. But if you've never read through the Bible in its entirety, you need to. And we'll talk about why you need to. But um, we want you to get on a reading plan that will take you through the Bible. Um, there's chronological ones that will take you through um, you know, the Bible in order as uh, in, in time when, it, when, when the events took place, which is not the way that the Bible was written. Um, there are others that will just take you through Genesis, through Revelation, and there are a whole host of other kinds that will take you through different kinds of reading plans. We've got several of them in, in section one. When you come on the 22nd, I want you to have to be narrowing down your selection because by the beginning of October, you need to start that, that Bible reading plan. That's your main assignment. We do give you an assignment on an assignment sheet each time, but we really want you to just be men who are reading through the Bible and you're meeting with God as you read throughout the year. Do you understand? But you also have to do this sheet, and these sheets that we give you hopefully aren't too long. They don't take too much homework or time from you to do it because we want you to put the bulk of your time in staying consistent and reading your Bible every day. Okay? That's what you need more than anything is to be in the Bible every day. Okay? So read through that, finish that up, and um, come ready next time, and we'll continue on talking about the heart. Let me um, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for these men, and thank you for their willingness to um, be exposed to so much this morning. Um, Pray, Lord, that um, we would only find encouragement and exhortation from your word, what it says about what you have made us into in Jesus. Lord, I pray that the gospel would become even fuller in our eyes, uh, that we would see it in all of its fullness that it actually possesses, Lord. Um, Your gospel has everything to say about the way that I live today. Thank you, Lord, for making us into new creatures in Christ. Thank you for equipping us in this new man um, with everything that we need for good works so that we can actually walk in them. And Lord, we understand that we still have the residue of sin within us. And we understand that it pulls on us. Oh, but Lord, what condition we are in now is so much better than what we were before. 
And your desire is that as we are in this mixed condition, our, your desire is that we would fight and that we would fight by your power so that it would be obvious to all that the power that is in our lives is you. And so God, you derive glory as we fight against sin and as we fight for Jesus, as we fight for holiness. Lord, would you please make us into men who rely upon your power in this new man that we are so that you are glorified as we grow in holiness of life. We need you desperately for this. Help us to shepherd our hearts well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming, guys.